ears to hear, Lord. We'd have eyes to see. And Lord, I pray, God, that you would take my weakness and that you would be shown strong. I pray, Lord, that we would see the truth uh, that you want us to see this morning in this passage. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. We're continuing our journey through the Kings, and we've made it through 1 Kings, and now we're in the 2 Kings. And I pray that uh, you have been just blessed by going through, I know I have, by going through the Old Testament narrative and, and just seeing how it connects to our lives. Stan read to you the passage out of Luke 4 that it really is remarkable because we see this connection. We see Jesus bringing up the section of Scripture we're looking at this morning. And, and I want you to focus in on that because there's something happening there. Um, Jesus speaks there in verse 26 um, or 25. Let's go back to that. And he says in verse 25, and he says, But in truth, I tell you, There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath and the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And then here we are. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. What is the spiritual climate when we think about Elisha in the middle of Israel? We're talking about apostasy. We're talking about idolatry. We're talking about paganism all over the land. And one of the things that we have to remember is this, is that the people of Israel, for the most part, were hard, unrepentant, and willful in their own ways. And Jesus in Nazareth, takes this passage. And even as they are listening to him in the synagogue, he uses it in such a way that they clearly see the application for their own hearts. If you look at the passage that follows, it wasn't as if they had this, you know, initially they were just so moved by his reading in the synagogue. He tells them that application, and what happens? When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And what did they do? And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. He clearly is showing that there's a connection not only with the hearts of the people in Israel at the time of 850 B.C., but there's also a connection to the hearts of the people in Nazareth at the time of his ministry. This morning, 2 Kings chapter 5. And what I'm entitled this message is simply true cleansing. True cleansing. When we look at this section, it's important just to get our bearings. Um, When we look at the king of Israel, it's not mentioned specifically in chapter 5, but Most scholars believe Jehoram is who he's speaking of. Jehoram was mentioned in chapter 3, in verse 3, chapter 3, verse 6, chapter 3, verse 8. 
And, and when we think about the leader of Syria, we're talking about Ben-Hadad, Ben-Hadad II. The way we're going to look at this this morning is six key movements in the narrative, six key movements in the narrative. How are we going to trace this story? The first part of the narrative that we're going to be captivated by, I pray, is number one, a devastating trial. We see a devastating trial as we jump into 2 Kings chapter 5. And, and it's going to start out, and again, it's going to be a Gentile. It's going to be a Syrian. We read in verse 1, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. As we move into chapter 5, if you're going to trace this whole scene, you got to understand four key people. Four key people. The first one's going to be Naaman. And we're going to examine Naaman. Who is this guy? The text tells us many different characteristics about his life. The first one's Naaman. The second one is a servant girl from Israel. You're going to see about her in verses 2 through 5. The third one is Elisha. We've been highlighting the ministry of Elijah and Elisha because through the text, we're seeing that this is God's way of bringing his word to the people of Israel. But then we're going to see a man, I called him Gehazi last time. Most of the people I've listened to say his name say Gehazi uh, or Gehazi. Now I can't even say it. I don't know. I had this memorized and ready to go. Um, Gehazi, Gehazi. Gehazi. <laughs> yeah, I remembered it was I. I was thinking about how do I remember how to say his name? And I was like, I, I, eyeball, eyeball, eyeball. Gehazi. Gehazi. So we're going to see him. Uh, maybe not uh, Gehazi. That sounded more uh, interesting to me to say his name that way. Uh, he wasn't Italian. He was, he, <laughs> he, was, uh, he was Hebrew. But when we look at this, What we're going to see is these four people, Naaman, the servant girl, Elisha, Gehazi. And and that's a significant four people, and we're going to see so much application that centers around these people in the narrative. The first one, though, is Naaman. And who is he? His name means um, gracious and fair. And we know from so many times in ancient times that, that, that they depicted the way the individual was received. A lot of people have suggested that this guy had you know, so much going for him other than this last predicament we're going to read here in the text. Uh, people speculate he was a handsome, gracious guy. Um, he was a commander of the army. You're going to see Syria. Some of your translations are going to say Aram, or some are going to say Syria, same meaning, Aram or Syria. He's a commander of the army. He's a great man with his master, his master, the king of Syria. He's in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. I, I found this really fascinating because in, in, in Jewish history, there was at least the, the rumor, the myth, the, the legend that the reason that he was the commander of the army, people speculate that in Jewish history that this was the man who shot the arrow. In chapter 22, verse 34, that killed King Ahab. 
Because what did we look at in that last chapter in 1 Kings? We saw Syria go at war with Israel. And we saw what? We saw the whole plan of Ahab to be disguised. But we saw some random man in chapter 22, verse 34, who shot the arrow. And there was a man that was killed. And the the man that was killed was King Ahab. And so a lot of Jewish uh, tradition states that the man who killed Ahab was none other than Naaman. We don't know if that's true, but it's fascinating. But then we learn here, we learn something in the text that, that I think is so important. He says, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. Isn't that an interesting statement? Because he gave victory to Syria. If it's speaking of that last battle with Israel, it's speaking of the fact that God's sovereignty had worked through a pagan nation. I think it's good that we keep our eyes on that because God orders this world. And so many of the events in the world we don't understand. And so many times when God is giving victory or working according to his plan, evil men do not give him glory But even in their success, only God can be in the background of their abilities. Something to keep our eyes on. We move here, though, and he says he was a mighty man of valor. You remember in the Judges, you see that a lot. Gideon, man of valor. Jephthah, man of valor. You see it in the first Kings. Jeroboam was a man of valor. Um, You see others. But then it uses the phrase that really is the shocker, but he was a leper. If you studied the Old Testament, been in Sunday school, had any type of uh, Jewish history of the Old Testament, you understand leprosy. Leprosy, a lot of people believe it's not the same thing we would refer to as leprosy even today, a little different. When we look at leprosy, it's important to remember that it would make one ritually unclean according to the law of Moses, Leviticus 13 and 14. It was a picture of one who was unclean under the judgment of God. I was reading uh, one of my favorite commentators, and he said, Naaman was a double outsider. He was an Aramean, and he was a leper. He was a great man, but he had a great need. He needed to be cleansed in every way. Leprosy began in the ancient world as small red spots on the skin. Before too long, the spots got bigger, one resource says, started to turn white with sort of a shiny or scaly appearance. Pretty soon, the spots spread over the whole body. Hair began to fall out, first from the head, even from the eyebrows. As things get worse, fingernails and toenails become loose. They start to rot, eventually fall off, The joints of fingers and toes begin to rot, fall off piece by piece. Gums begin to shrink. They couldn't hold the teeth anymore. So each of them was lost. It would eat away at the face until the nose, the palate, even the eyes rotted. Wonderful things to think about before lunch today. This is serious stuff. I mean, when you look at this, I was listening to one man, and he made the, uh, the observation. I can't prove it, but he made the observation that very likely this came upon Naaman at the greatest part of his success. 
Everything was going well. Everything was happening. Here's a guy that appears potentially from the meaning of his name. He's a good-looking guy. He, he's successful. He's a commander. He's got all the accolades. He's well-loved. And all of a sudden, everything that was going in the direction that he had longed for came crumbling. I tell you, I, I, I guarantee it, um, if we went around the room, whether this was a condition that he had before he became commander of the army, whether it suddenly came upon him, it was in a devastating trial in his life. But I guarantee it, if we went around the room, so many in here could speak about tragedies or speak about circumstances that came into your life when it appeared that everything looked just like you had hoped. And what's so interesting here is that often God, in his sovereign goodness, kindness, and providence, and wisdom, he often works through the dilemma, the tragedy, the difficulty, the circumstance, the trial to get our eyes off of earthly things and to get our perception onto spiritual realities. I wonder what it is for you today, what potentially you're going through that you see as your greatest burden, that you see as the greatest catastrophe, that you see as the greatest obstacle in the background. But what happens here is we begin to see how God works. We see not only a devastating trial, but the second movement here in the narrative is an evangelistic servant. An evangelistic servant. This is fascinating. Look at verse 2. Now, the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. Wow. There would be raids. I remember uh, I got a chance to go to Israel many times in my 20s and 30s. I've been over there about six times. And one of the times we were at the, at the border, you know, and every time, you know, whether Israel is having, modern-day Israel is having uh, skirmishes with Lebanon, skirmishes with Syria. Over the last, you know, 40 years, Jordan has been a peaceful neighbor. But when you get into, uh, when you start thinking about Egypt, when you start thinking about, you think about Lebanon, you think about Syria, you're talking about constant friction. And that's true all the way back in the Old Testament times. And I remember one time being on the border with uh, at Lebanon, and I remember asking the guide, we were in a bunker area, and there were some kids in the group, and they thought it was the greatest thing ever. They were running and crawling through the bunkers, and it looked like bunkers that were just, you know, you know, these don't, I was like, when's the last time they use these? Like, they use these any time that there's a skirmish. And right when we got back, even like within a month, there was a Lebanon skirmish with Israel, and I thought to myself, there they are in those bunkers again. Well, think about it. When, when you're at a time of war, there'll be parts of that where you're actually engaged in battle, but there'll often be raids across the border. And when raids would take place at a time of war, there would be things that would be pillaged. There would be things that would be stolen. And unfortunately, a reality of war is that there would be people taken captive. And this little girl from Israel was taken captive. A stunning story of the sovereign goodness of God in the midst of her greatest calamity. And what happens is she ends up in the service of Naaman's wife. And we read in verse 3, she said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet 
who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So many things to reflect on. Were her parents killed when she was taken captive? Were her parents still in Israel, overwhelmed at the sadness of the loss of their precious little girl? And yet think about the reality that in history, this little girl with no name almost 3,000 years ago, taken captive across the border, that in Scottsboro, Alabama, in 2023, 3,000 years later, we're speaking of her. Do you think at the time that anybody had any clue as to how God intended to use this young little girl? It's clear that she understood the God of Israel. She understood Yahweh. She understood the prophet. She had a better spiritual perception than many of the leaders in Israel. This little bitty slave girl, she has more spiritual perception than even the king of Israel, Jehoram. And now she shares news that produces the very highway through which is going to take Naaman to the king. And she tells him, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. As I was researching this and just thinking about this and hearing other thoughts about this, one thought that I heard that blessed me mightily was, whatever is the case with this little girl, it's clear that people had poured into her life. There were people somewhere on her journey that had taught her about Yahweh, that had taught her about the God of Israel. And now, little did they know, very likely never to see her again, very likely never to know of their impact, never to know of what they're doing. God was using this girl now to spread good news. She became an evangelistic servant. Verse 4, so Naaman went in and told his Lord thus, and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. Verse 4 is, is fascinating because it doesn't necessarily infer one translation of the old King James was that it was just an individual went into the king. We don't know for certain if it was, this, was, if it was the, the wife. We don't know if it was Naaman, because a lot of people speculate, well, Naaman, the wife told Naaman, and then Naaman went into the king, but we really don't know for sure. It could have been that someone else heard the little girl say this and went to the king. All that to say, the king found out and now is in the presence of his Lord. Thus and so spoke from the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. We're talking like in today's money, well over a million dollars. One resource I looked at, the common wages of 600 men. 600 men combined would be this type of gift. Here we are. We have people of power, king of Syria. We have Naaman, the commander. They have what they need. They have all the resources. If they need it, the mindset is they can purchase it. If they need it, we got the money. If we need it, we'll pay for it. Well, what happens is now we've got movement a little further. We come into this unexpected remedy, and what we're going to see is we're going to see the king's dialogue 
with Naaman and his letter, we're going to see the first part of this is an arrogant response, and then we're going to see how God brought Naaman to humility. An unexpected remedy. And look how this develops. We, we come into the text in verse 6, and he brought the letter to the king, which read, when this letter reaches you, you know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And listen to the response of the king. Jehoram, verse 7, and when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. He's upset. He thinks it's a setup. The king of Israel is so spiritually dull of hearing from God that his mind doesn't even go to Elisha's ministry. That is telling. A little bitty servant girl is way more advanced in the things of God than the king of Israel. And what happens is, now he's thinking, what do you mean? What do you want me to do? Why is he trying to give me and make me have a quarrel with him? Well, verse 8, but when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? <laughs> Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. He doesn't say, let him come to me that I will heal him. He says, let him come to me that he may know there's a prophet in Israel. Now, now verse 9, so Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Now, you've got to think about this because uh, Elisha would have been a, a common man and very likely a common neighborhood. And all of a sudden, all the, just the, can you imagine? He came with his horses and chariots. I mean, kids get excited about a UPS truck showing up at the house. But can you imagine uh, horses and chariots? I mean, this is the commander of the army of Syria, and now they're at the house. They're at the house, and what do we see happen? Now, this is phenomenal. Verse 10, and Elisha sent a messenger to him. Elisha doesn't even go to the door. He sends a messenger. He sends a messenger, and the messenger comes to him. And go, the messenger looks at uh, Naaman, go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. Now, wait a minute, verse 11. But Naaman was what? He was angry. And he went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me, and stand and call upon the name of the Lord as God, wave his hand over the place, and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. He thinks too highly of himself. He doesn't understand that in the only way to get to healing is going to be through the road of humility. He doesn't understand it. He's mad. He's angry. He's 
how dare you? I come all the way here. You send out your messenger. You can't come talk to me to my face. Elisha's not really worried about Naaman and his popularity and his clout. I tell you, isn't it it interesting? If we don't have the proper reverence of God, we'll never understand how to treat man. A proper fear of God will give you grace to not show favoritism to people. If you don't have a proper fear of God, you're always going to show favorites to the people that are the most important in the eyes of the world. I tell you, you know, uh, teenagers, a really good sign of whether or not you have a healthy fear of God is whether or not you treat people different based on the popularity level they have at school. If you don't have a proper fear of God, you're enamored with the people that are cool. You're enamored with the people that are great. And you may think I'm picking on the teenagers, but teenagers, they usually listen when I talk to you. Other people listen in here. That's why I'm picking on you. That problem doesn't change when you get older. I tell you, remember James? They were catering to the people that had money. You take the good seats. The poor people take the cheap seats. Let's make sure we focus on the people that have clout. Let's focus on the people that have a name in the kingdom of God. In his economy, the price tags flip. All of a sudden, it's the people in the back of the line becoming the first of the line. Everything changes. We have a different perspective of how we regard people. And Elisha had that healthy fear of God. And and, 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 and at this point in the story, Naaman doesn't understand. He's upset. He wants to do it his way. He wants to be healed. He wants to experience a cure, but he has his own remedy in mind. I tell you, this is something else because so many people, they want the benefits that they believe Christ can give, but they want to receive them their own way. They want the benefit. I'll never forget, I sat out in this parking lot one day talking to a guy who was uh, embracing uh, Mormonism. I'll never forget, I told him, I said, man, I said, be careful. I said, because you are embracing another gospel. It's not a gospel. Look what Paul says about embracing another gospel. We looked at Galatians together. And I'll never forget, he looked at me and he said, but he goes, I know that this is about the Bible says salvation by grace through faith. But, but there's got to be a little bit more than at least something that I bring and something that I do. The foolishness of the cross to the eyes of the world. The remedy of the cross of Jesus Christ. To believe upon this man who dies on the cross to save the sins of the world. To believe in salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone is foolishness to the unbelieving world. There has to be another way. There has to be something else. There has to be a river that I can wash in that's cleaner. There has to be something here that appeases my flesh. I was thinking about this, 1 Corinthians 1, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. 1 Peter, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become 
the cornerstone. Think about it. I mean, so many of us can relate to athletics. I played sports all through life, through college. You, you put your mind to it, you can do it. You work hard enough, you can achieve it. You do what you got to do. The result is in your corner. You either work hard and earn it or you don't. You get into a job situation, you accomplish scholastic achievements. I never had that problem. But, but if that was your story, you know how it is. I mean, it gave you a secret, I think, uh, sense of accomplishment when you saw me come into the class and not understanding it was a test that day, but you had studied all week. And you thought, man, I don't have any pity for him because he's going to flunk because that's what he deserves. But I've worked hard for this. You see, that's, that's, that's not just, that's all of us. That's the way the world thinks. And all of a sudden, we come face to face with a gospel that says it's not of works lest any man should boast. And to the natural man, it's a repulsive message. It's repulsive. It's no different than a messenger coming to the door and telling us to go wash in a dirty river seven times. Ha! First Peter, and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Isn't it interesting that in this part of the story, Naaman is stumbling over the word of God. Elisha is revealing the word of the Lord, and the problem at this point in the story is Naaman is stumbling at God's revelation and has a different way. But the gospel has to humble us, before it heals us. I thought that was put so well as I read that. The gospel must first humble us before it heals us. And now we see God begin to humble this man. Look at verse 13. Now notice the servants in this story. It's the servants that God is enabling to bring wisdom to the rulers. Verse 13, but his servants came near and said to him, my father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. God was doing a work that you couldn't see on the outside, but on the inside, the seven times that he dipped into the Jordan, it was as if God was taking him down, 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 down. He was humbling the man. Have you been humbled by the Lord? It's a humbling that is the only way. Jesus says it like this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. Remember Jesus said that I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. There's a lot of people that are enamored with the things of Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. They've never seen their need. You see, on the surface, 
If you heard this, Naaman is going to God's prophet. He's humbling himself to go to his door. Wouldn't you think that that was a good sign that he was a humble man? Absolutely. But what did we learn about his first response? At that point in the story, he's not a humble man. He's a proud and arrogant man. Now, you may say, well, he humbled himself to go all the way to Israel, to go to the king of Israel, the king of their enemy. He humbled himself to go all the way to the doorway of this prophet. But at that point in the story, he is not a broken man. The question is this, is a question to ask ourselves, Maybe we have all the trappings of the gospel. Maybe we have all the characteristics we think of the believer. We go to church. We say the right things in profession of Christ. But the question is this, have we come to the place of seeing our absolute need? Have we submitted to the word of the Lord? Matthew speaks about that. I remember, do you remember, I told a story a long time ago. I haven't said it in many years. When I went on that uh, basketball camp mission trip to Budapest, I never knew this, but it's interesting because, like, there's a bridge that separates Buda from Pest. That's why it's called Budapest. Pretty cool, huh? And uh, there's a bridge, and I remember we were coming over that bridge, and me and two friends, and we were coming over the bridge, and in the middle of the bridge, there was a gypsy lady. I'll never forget it. I can see her, I can see her face in my mind right now. And, and she had her hand over her eyes, and she was knelt down, and she was going like this. And she was holding out her hand, and she was a beggar. She wouldn't look at me. She wouldn't look at me. She wouldn't make eye contact. When, when, when I came home and I was looking, I was, I was teaching through the Sermon on the Mount at the time, and I remember reading Matthew 5, 3, and the first image that came in my mind was that gypsy lady. I remembered the story of a man that I knew from England who said back in the, way back in, in the history of, of London that if you were a beggar, there would be pantries in the houses of the residents of London. But if you were a beggar, you would get no food if you came to the front door. The only time you would get food is if you went to the back door. If you went to the back door, there was money and there was food for beggars. If you came to the front door, you couldn't get any food. That which reveals to me that I can't do anything, that I'm spiritually bankrupt, that I can't offer anything to God, that it's not my best efforts, it's not my church going, it's not the good people I'm around, it's not the good stories of Jesus, it's not the good morals of Jesus, it's that I am in need of a Savior, and I'm in need of redemption, and I see my need, I see my infection, I see my illness, I see my spiritual condition, and the only way that I can receive a remedy from a holy God is to submit to what his word reveals about that remedy. But thanks be to God. God has grace for the weak. Amen? That God has weak for the brokenhearted. That God has weak. He has grace for those that are bankrupt, that have no answers, that have no ways. They point him to the reality, and he goes into the water seven times, and what does it say? It's amazing, isn't it? 
his, his flesh turned into complete transformation. Complete transformation takes place. He goes down, and what does it say? His flesh, in verse 14, was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Friend, there's a cleansing that only the blood of Jesus Christ can bring. I love this. First Corinthians says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And you know, before you think that everybody was listening to this going, yeah, those awful, dirty people, they never are going to inherit the kingdom of God. But then Paul says something that sort of flips it on its head. He says, what? And such were what? Some of you. But you were what? Washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Titus says it like this. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. We need a cleansing that only Christ can provide. But God has made a way through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all those who by grace through faith alone depend on Christ and trust in him by faith are cleansed by the work of the Holy Spirit. And what begins to happen here is phenomenal. You begin to see something immediately. There's a transformed conscience that begins to happen. Look at verse 15. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. He stood before him a different man. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Naaman realizes that God is the God of the world. He's not just the God of Israel, but the God of Israel is the only true God. So accept now a present from your servant. Verse 16, but he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. He offers him a gift, and Elisha is perceptive to the fact that even though it appears that this gift is out of gratitude and thankfulness, he doesn't in any way want to make a strange connection between the payment or the gift and the healing and, and the work that God has done in him and the cleansing. And he says, no, 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 we're not doing that. This is a, this is a gracious gift of God. This is a gracious gift of God. You don't need to give me a gift. Verse 16, but he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I'll receive none. He urged to take it, but he refused Verse 17, then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two, two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. It's interesting. He wants to take, I, I was trying to learn more about this and, and just researching it. He, he wanted to take all the, the dirt, all the earth he could back to Damascus. And, and he wanted to use this to make an altar to the Lord. And, and, and many from that culture believed that no God could be worshipped except in its own land or on an altar built with the dirt of that land. And so we've got to be patient with uh, Naaman here because he's a brand new, he's a changed man, he's brand new changed, you know, he's, he's, he's just a baby 
Verse 18, In this matter may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. What in the world's happening here? I had the same question if you're asking that question. And in looking at it, the, the text seems to suggest here this is a good thing, not a bad thing. Elisha's words of go in peace seem to suggest that, that Elisha had confidence that God would work out the details as this man goes back to Syria of how to follow and worship God. And not only that, one man, Tony Morita, said, Naaman essentially explains that he's not adding Yahweh to his already existing pagan gods, but rather he's turning from all false gods and replacing them with Yahweh. The situation he describes in verses 17 through 19 might not first appear to say this, but he goes on, he says, I think that's exactly the point. Naaman says that he's committed to worshiping Yahweh exclusively, but he wants pardon in advance because he knows that he will be going to the pagan temple with his master. Is Naaman then not committed? No, I think the opposite is true. This was simply part of Naaman's job description. Naaman is implying with the soil sample that even though he will be in the temple with his master, he will not worship his master's idol. I believe whatever is actually happening here, it's a picture that Naaman now has a more sensitive conscience than even the people of Israel. The people of Israel that are worshiping Baal and worshiping the Asherah. And now this man has been cleansed and his mind immediately jumps to the reality that because this is the God of the world, it has ramifications on even how I live when I go back home. God would be faithful to work out the details with his servant in due time. So this morning, what do we do with all of this? I wanted to keep going, but we'd be here till 1 o'clock. I want to give you just a few things to consider. Number one, learn from the servant girl. Learn from the servant girl. What do we need to learn from the servant girl? God calls us to be evangelists, and you may think this morning that there's nothing and no way that you can be effective as an evangelist in this world. You may be thinking, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a church leader. I'm just a person in this world. We'll take encouragement from a servant girl in a foreign land that when the good news is shared, it's God's work, not our work, and God takes that seed that is scattered and he works it in ways that we can never fully understand. Will we speak up? Teen, will you speak up in your school situation? Uh, you know, go, low, go younger than that. Child, will you speak up to your friend? Tell him about the good news of Jesus? Um, adult? That's all of us, I guess. <laughs> Are, are you praying that God would open up a door for his word? Wouldn't it be a tragedy if we were a church that sought to teach expositionally through books of the Bible and we were just like a holy huddle that came in here and thought, oh, isn't this a beautiful message of the grace of God? Isn't this just wonderful truth of the saving, cleansing power of Christ in my life? Wouldn't it be tragic if we walked out of these doors 
and didn't have any thoughts or time for our neighbors and didn't consider the coworkers in our life and didn't consider that the people around us are living, seeking to remedy their greatest disease with man-made solutions. And by God's grace, we have the only remedy that saves, the remedy that points them to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and his substitutionary death on a cross for sinners that is not of works. There's no religious amount of deeds we can perform. We can't serve on enough committees. We can't go to enough Bible studies. We can't be good enough, charitable enough, look good enough. It's only for the bankrupt sinner who recognizes apart from the grace of Jesus Christ and the blood that he sheds, we have no hope of forgiveness of sins. And it leads me to my second one, see your need of cleansing. This story is not just a picture of Naaman's cleansing. It, it, I think it really does. It points us to the reality that just as Naaman was dealing with this disease, when we look at the New Testament, we can relate to this. We are all under the disease and the penalty of sin, and we're in desperate need of cleansing. And the question is going to be, are we going to embrace God's remedy in Christ? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates his love towards us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and not out of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The remedy is only through the Lord Jesus Christ. But this morning, I want you to see there's hope for those who are not only diseased, but those who are unclean. Today you may be here and you literally think there's no way because of what you've done and what you're polluted with. In your mind, you're thinking, I could never be a part of this church because they don't know who I really am. Friend, the good news of the gospel is that Christ Jesus came to die for sinners. And it's those who are willing to dip seven times. It's those who are willing to go down the road of humility and brokenness And that's only because God's grace leads us there. Earlier we sang nothing but the blood. I want to read this to you that we sang. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So this morning... Are we going to be like Israel in the day of Elisha? Unbelieving, unwilling, unwilling to submit to the remedy that God had provided. Or are we going to be like the people of Nazareth? Hard-headed, uncompromising in their arrogance, in their attitude towards the things of God. Or will we today graciously, because of his spirit, 
humble ourselves before the gracious remedy of Christ Jesus and receive full, total cleansing from sin. Would you bow your head? I thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace. God, I thank you, Lord, that what binds us together this morning as a church is the fact that it's even ground literally at the foot of the cross. That we are broken and unable. We can't earn our way to you. But this morning we reflect on the reality that we've been declared in right standing with you, Father, through the blood and the work of your precious Son. And I pray today, Lord, that all those who recognize their disease, who recognize their lack of purity, I pray today that they would see that there's cleansing power in the blood of Jesus. And I pray today that they would see that there's hope for total and true cleansing through the work that you provided at your cross. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your work for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'd stand with me in these last moments this morning.